Hebrews chapter 3, the the main topic is Hebrews, Jesus is better, and this morning we're going to look at how he's better than Moses. And so on the next slide I have for you there, um, that in the book of Hebrews so far, we have looked at uh, the book of Hebrews just basically to see that everything these Jewish Christians believed in as Jews was totally true, but all of their fulfillment is found in the person of Jesus. And so to follow the religion and then to come to know Jesus and know the Father personally, to no longer need a uh, a mediator between you and God, and and to have this full access, um, and then to desire to go back to the things that were before that you trusted in your Israelite religion is really taking two steps forward and one step back. And, and to, to be in the middle, to be on the fence between two uh, seemingly different religions, which were really not different, they were the same, is to be on the fence and to miss out on the blessing. And so um, this morning, as we start in chapter 3, the, the writer, uh, leaving chapter 2, and we're going to start, sorry, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, He says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus had to become a man in order to destroy death and to destroy the power of the devil and release those who through fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to bondage. They were subject to fear and slavery because of the fear of death. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make payment or propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so he is a high priest. He is the sacrifice. But then in chapter 3, he begins by saying, therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, don't start there. Start at the previous passage. And that's why I went back and read it, because he's saying, therefore, in light of what I've just told you, Jesus being our high priest, Jesus giving the payment for sins, Jesus not helping the angels, but instead He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle. The apostle just means the sent one, the messenger, and the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So he says first and foremost, and he said this many times throughout the book of Hebrews, we're just in the third chapter, he says, consider Jesus. And so who should consider Jesus Christ? He says those who are united together in the same confession of our faith. What is that confession? Well, in Romans chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it to you really quickly. Paul has already written, Romans chapter 10, verse 8, this very thing. He writes, 
But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the confession. Verse 9, that if you can, excuse me, verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so, for the scriptures say, whoever believes on him, meaning Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And so he says this confession that we've made, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he was raised from the dead, this is the confession, and this is what we profess, not just confess, I believe in Jesus, but then profess to a world that does not believe that we believe. And so we're united in this confession. And if you are united in this confession, what I want to point out is that you are one of these holy brethren. Now, if you hear that phrase and you hear somebody call you holy, what does that make you think? You think, uh, they don't know me like I know me. I am not holy. But because of the work of Jesus, he is holy. Jesus, God the Father was fully pleased in him before he died on the cross. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, having never done anything wrong, so that he could purchase you and I back from the slavery of sin and death. And so if that's the reality, then guess what? That's what God says about you. You are made holy strictly based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let that sink in, and though you may have some kickback, like, no, I'm not, you need to really bask in that. Because if you have kickback, it means you're starting to, it means that you say, I'm not holy because I've done this, 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 and this. But what you're saying is, I know you, what you say, God, but. I know what your word says, God, but. And that's when you're really, in your heart, maybe you wouldn't profess, I'm good because of what I do, but when you have that kickback that says, I'm not really holy, what you're doing is you're actually confessing that uh, your works are what saves you, and they're not. And so you need to know that ahead of time. So as he says, holy brethren, he, we are those holy brethren, whether we feel like it or not. If you come together under this confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that God raised him from the dead, that he made the payment that turns away the wrath of God that we deserve, then you are holy because of Jesus. Number two, we are, he says, partakers of a heavenly calling. To be holy means to be set apart for a particular use. Now, it's not the same word, but to be set apart, we could set apart our silverware to be used to eat dinner. And how do we set it apart? We wash it. Now, when I was single, not so much. I'd be like, hey, that's not really that dirty. And I'd set it there and I'd use it the next meal because I'm lazy. It's not really set apart, right? Uh, but God cleanses us as his utensils and prepares us for not only a holy calling, but a heavenly calling. So, He's not speaking to the lost is the point I want to make here. 
when he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider this apostle. He was sent with a message for us. Consider Jesus, our high priest. He's the one that mediates between us and God. We no longer have to go to a human being. We go to Jesus, who was a human being, who took our sins upon him. He made payment for our sin, and now he enters boldly into the throne of grace. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We pray through him. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just meaning, I'm done praying now. That's what Lucy thinks right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm done, right? But what we're praying is we're praying in the character and in the will of God. We're praying according to his way of praying. We're going through Jesus. He is our high priest. And so he says, consider Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. So he's not speaking to the law. So we're going to talk about how these people that we're getting ready to talk about, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but there's a reason. He's going to say that they were not partakers. They did not fully enter into the promises of God because of unbelief. But what I want to point out is that it's not because they were lost. It's because they simply didn't continue in faith. They actually subjected themselves to fear instead of faith. And so he says there, in verse 3, um, this. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And then he says in verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And so he says, consider Jesus... And consider the fact that he's better than Moses. Now, to us, we know that. We have the New Testament, right? But to them, the deliverer, the man that God used to deliver them out of the slavery of Egypt, was Moses. Moses was like larger than life to them. In many ways, they might have been tempted to worship him. And future generations started to worship him. Many don't know this, but when Moses went up on the mountain and he was not allowed to enter into the promised land, they were never able to find his body after he died. Now, some would say that he didn't die, but he did not enter into the land of Canaan. Well, the reason that many believe that he was not able to be found his body is because they would be likely to worship him as God and make him an idol. And so Moses was this deliverer of the law. He was a deliverer of the people. He led them to the Red Sea. He was the one that God used to raise his hands up and part the Red Sea, and then to lead them through that baptism into the wilderness, which they would wander in for 40 years. But Moses was this deliverer that God used, and they were prone to worship him. So in verse 3 and 4, he says, This one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, speaking of Jesus, because he who built the house has more honor than the house. So on the next slide, I have for you kind of a, a picture there. And, well, I didn't end up putting it in there, but I had a picture of somebody standing up in the rafters and nailing and working on a house. Now, who walks up to a house and says, Oh, house, look how great you are how you just miraculously made yourself happen. But 
when he's making the point that when you look at Moses and you see him as greater than Jesus, you really, it's the same thing as looking at a house and saying the house is greater than the person that made it. The house can't do anything by itself. Moses could not do anything by himself. Moses was afraid. If you remember when God called him, he spoke to him through the burning bush. It was actually telling him, and it was God in the bush saying, I want you to go and deliver my people from slavery. And Moses, did he stand up and go, I'm your man, let's go. He said, uh, maybe you're mistaken here because I got a stutter. Um, I don't speak well. I'm nervous. Of course, he also remembered that the last time he was in Egypt, he was on the top 10 most wanted. He had murdered someone. Who am I to deliver your great people? I'm just a broken man. And God said, I, I know, but I chose you. You are holy. You, you have a heavenly calling. I've placed a calling on your life to go and play this part in this role of redemption. I'm going to use you as a type. And Moses was just that. He was a man that practically delivered God's people, the Israelites, but he was also a type of Christ. Everything that Moses did was to point us to the ultimate Messiah, Jesus, who was going to come and deliver his people from slavery and death and bondage and bring them into this promised land. Now, unfortunately, when we read about Canaan, and if you were raised in an old school church, you would sing these hymns about Canaan, the land of Canaan that was on the other side of the Jordan River as if it was heaven. But if it was about heaven, it's not a very good heaven because once you get to the land of Canaan, they had to battle. There was war. There were people that inhabited that land that God was going to use his people to judge them and to disperse them and utterly wipe them out and then they would inhabit the land. So the land of Israel used to be inhabited by other nations and God gave them 400 years to repent. That's why he sent his people to Egypt for 400 years waiting for the repentance of these people and when they did not repent, then God sent his people to be a part of their judgment. And so we have this people, the Israelites. But I've gotten ahead of myself again because he was faithful, Moses, to the one who chose and sent him. Even though he kind of stuttered and backed off and said, no, not me, he eventually went. And, and guess what? Jesus was faithful like Moses had been in his house. Moses was faithful in the house of God, in the house of Jesus. And then he was worthy of more glory than Moses because he built the house of Israel. Moses was part of the house that he was building. And then everything Moses did was at God's leading. Now, we see later that Moses had failures. Jesus never had any failures. So again, pointing to Jesus saying, Moses was good, but Jesus is greater. So verse 5, he says, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which would be spoken of afterwards. So I want to apologize ahead of time for my ridiculous amount of notes, but since I couldn't memorize all I wanted to say, I put it on this screen. So even if you can't read it, I'm sorry, um, but I can send it to you later if you really want to, if you're a note taker. So I wanted to go through and compare Moses to Jesus. And I wanted to show that he was faithful as a servant, but he was also faithful as a servant to 
as a type of Christ. The Old Testament has individuals that are types or foreshadows of what Christ would ultimately fulfill. And so we look at the life of Moses and you see all these things that Moses did that were actually a foretaste of what Jesus was going to do. So he was a type of Christ to be revealed later. And we've said that before, that the Old Testament is Christ concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed in the Old Testament. And so, number one, he was, and this is just a, a, a short list. There are probably many other things. He was born from among his brethren. Number one, Moses was born from among his brethren. He was an Israelite. Jesus, too. His life was threatened at birth. Remember the Exodus story? They were actually told because the, the Egyptians didn't like the fact that the Israelites were kind of multiplying quicker than they were. God had his hand of blessing upon them, so he said, okay, they're going to be stronger than us soon, so let's go ahead and kill all the firstborn, or all the, the, the boys, and, and then we'll have all the ladies to be servants, but there won't be an uprising. So they said, every Hebrew son that's born, kill him. Well, some of these ladies were pretty hardcore. They'd have their babies. They would hold their tongues so they wouldn't be found out, which is amazing to me. And then after they had their children, they would hide them. And it says of Moses' mom that she actually had her and then or had him. And then when she had him, she nursed him all the way up to a certain point. So she kept him quiet. How crazy. But she was doing this by faith because she could not take the, the life of this child or let it be taken, because uh, that's murder. And so she was trying to honor the God that provided this child, and so she trusted God. And what she did, ultimately, is when the child got big enough, when he was weaned, she put him on a little boat. The word for that boat was ark in the Hebrew. She put him on the Nile River, and she trusted God to take care of him. And so he was saved by water. Moses means drawn out of water, just like the ark of Noah. And so we have Moses, who is essentially taken into the Pharaoh's household, and guess what? There happens to be a Hebrew woman that's willing to nurse him, his mom, so a woman of faith. And so his life was threatened at birth. Jesus, look at Jesus's life. When he was born, the tax collectors, and then uh, Herod wanted to kill him, and so they had to flee to Egypt, and it was prophesied that that would happen in Isaiah, and then he was brought back into the land when Herod passed, and then when his life was threatened once again, he was, by the Holy Spirit, led to another land until the time that he would ultimately, at his 30th birthday, around the time he turned 30, be uh, baptized by John the Baptist and brought into, out of his obscurity into his life of ministry. So God chose him to deliver Israel from oppression. Moses was chosen by God to deliver his people from bondage and slavery. Jesus was chosen, sent by God, appointed by God to go to his people and to speak liberty to those who were captive to Rome at the time. They thought he was going to deliver them as a political delivery, but what we find out is he was actually going to deliver them from their worst enemy. An enemy worse than government oppression is called sin. So Jesus first came to deliver them from their sin. And then through baptism, he delivered them uh, miraculously. Uh, Israelites were delivered through baptism. Did you know that? They were baptized, a type of baptism, 
as God delivered them miraculously across the Red Sea. Did you know it was a shorter way, uh, excuse me, a longer way to go above the Red Sea and go around? But God didn't take them that way. I just read that this morning. He didn't take them that way because if he would have taken them that way, there would have been battles and they weren't ready yet to fight battles. So God sent them to the Red Sea. Seemingly, they thought they would be destroyed. God told uh, Moses to raise his staff, to hold it up, and see the deliverance of the Lord. And they, he split the Red Sea overnight. And then the Pharaoh had sent his warriors to come and destroy them. And what it says there is that the pillar of cloud shielded them from being able to be seen by the, the warriors, the, the battalion, and, and as he did that, they were able to escape, and then God sent his presence before them, and in the morning, when the Egyptians saw that, they followed them into the Red Sea on the dry land that had been miraculously provided by God, and as the last Israelite stepped up onto soil, out of the Red Sea, what happened? They were completely covered in water. God let the water go and drown the Egyptians. He delivered them. And so this picture of seemingly we're going to die, brought through the water, raised up to life again. I believe that many of them believed they would die overnight. They would be destroyed by the Egyptians, and they were not. Also, Moses stood as a mediator between God and the Israelites. He ended up going to this little tabernacle that they had made until they came up with the actual tabernacle, and he would intercede on their behalf. He was a mediator. He prayed many times that God would not destroy them. And I was reading that this morning as um, he, uh, they had uh, sinned against God and, and multiple times they had broken the commandments. And, and when Moses came down off the mountain, they were actually having uh, what many believed to be this party. They had said, you know what, where's Moses? It's been 40 days. Um, why don't we just worship something else? And they, Aaron, of all people, the most holy guy in all Israel, molded down and melted their gold rings that they had gotten from the, Israel, or the Egyptians when they plundered them and made a golden calf and they started to worship it. So when Moses came down off the mountain, he was so furious, he broke the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he said, and God said he was going to destroy them. And at that point, Moses throws himself down and starts to pray for the Israelites. He said, the Egyptians saw you deliver your people. Lord, please don't destroy them lest they say about you that you are not able to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh. So he interceded. And uh, also when they complained. And so one of the things that Moses was not like Christ in is that he actually, in Numbers chapter, uh, uh, I think it was 20 or 21, I'm going to turn there, uh, Moses was uh, given instruction by the Lord. They were in the desert, and they'd been there for 40 years. And guess what's not in the desert? Water. What keeps you from living quicker than anything is the lack of water. There's life and death. And so um, God told him, I want you to go up. I want you to speak to this rock. And out of this rock, I'm going to pour out rivers of living water. And so Moses, being frustrated, had dealt with these Israelites, these hard, rebellious people. Moms and dads, you know what it's like. Your kids are just absolutely driving you nuts. Moses had two million kids, and they were complaining about not having anything to drink. God was providing miraculously bread from heaven every day. They just had to go gather it off the desert floor. 
They complained about that. They asked for meat. He sent them meat. They ate it till they threw up. Uh, and then God uh, provided them miraculously water before, and so he told him this time, I want you to provide water for my people. And in Numbers chapter 21, um, let's see here. Maybe it's chapter 20. Nope. I thought I had Numbers chapter 20. It says there in verse 1 that the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother, get, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! And he proceeds to yell at them. Now, is that what God told him to do? No, he said, speak to the rock. Why is he talking to the people? Because he's mad. What was he told to do? Speak to the rock. Instead, he yells at the people, and he says, Hear now, you rebels! And then he strikes the rock twice. He beats the rock. Well, this is a big no-no because God was using Moses as a type of Christ. And so because of his rejection of this instruction, he tells him, you've misrepresented me. There's a higher consequence for those who are called to represent the Lord. So he says, you rep misrepresented me, therefore you shall never enter into the land of promise. This was the consequence. Did that mean that Moses was no longer in God's grace? No. God could have smoked him right then. But what it means is that we are responsible for what God teaches us. And so he misrepresented the Lord. He was not allowed to enter into the land. And not only that, but he blurred the image that that was supposed to be of Christ. Instead of speaking to the rock and having the rock provide this river of living water that provided water for two million people, he yelled at them, misrepresenting. God wasn't mad at them. He was disappointed but he wasn't angry with them. And so he missed out on the blessing of obedience. And so um, my point in telling you all of this will become apparent here shortly. Verse 6, it says, But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He says, But Christ, the son over his own house, whose house we are. We are the house of God. We are this house if we hold fast our confidence and rejoice in the hope firm to the end. And so we look at Christ in comparison. He was faithful as a son over his own house. He never misrepresented God. 
he allowed himself to be struck for us. So even in Moses' rebellion, he actually did show what the nation of Israel would do, that they would strike the rock. Who is the rock? Christ. Who provides that river of living water, the Holy Spirit? Christ. Who was struck on our behalf? Christ. So that wrath, even the unrighteous wrath of Moses is a picture of the wrath of God that we deserve, and yet God in His grace provided that water anyway. So, still building His house. We are His house if we continue to hold fast our confidence and rejoicing in the hope firm to the end. So, not only is Christ the Son uh, over this house, He's the heir of this house, but He's still building it. We are His house. The big if is if we're confident in Him and rejoice in Him as our hope through to the end. Anchor our souls to the confession that we already read in Romans chapter 10. So chapter, uh, excuse me, in the same chapter, we continue on in verse 7. He says, therefore, and I know there's a lot that led up to the therefore. I realize that's a lot to take in. But he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. He says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, look at this, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so there's this reference, and if you have a, a Bible like me, it's actually in italics. And he's quoting from Psalm chapter 95. So turn there with me to Psalm chapter 95. Or Psalm 95, I guess it's not necessarily a chapter. Psalm 95. My Bible says this is a call to worship and obedience. He says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. That rock he's speaking of is referring back to the story we read in Numbers. He says, let us come before his presence with thankfulness or thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is great, excuse me, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us humble ourselves or kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So they begin this song with a confession. 
They, they, they adore God. They look at him and they, they praise him just for who he is. When was the last time that you just praised God for who he is rather than what he has to give you? But then as they confess this, they say, here's who we are and here's who you are. They say, he is our God, verse 7, and we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Now, if you know anything about sheep, they are humbling themselves in saying that. How do sheep defend themselves? They don't. They can't. They know that. They're, they're skittish because of that. They're, so the, he's their master. He's their shepherd. They're the, the sheep of his pasture. So in light of who he is and who we are, what the psalmist writes is today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Sound familiar? He's quoting exactly from that passage in Psalm 95. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. This is God speaking. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, let me ask you this. He says, and I think the most indicting phrase in this whole thing, they tested me, they tried me, even though they saw what I did. How many times have you heard someone say, well, if, if I saw God do a miracle, then I would believe. If you read the Old Testament, that should be a big indictment against that thought. Well, if only God would do X, Y, or Z. If he would heal my relative of cancer, then I would believe. If he would get me the job that I want, then I would believe. If he would fill in the blank, what was the, what's the thing that you desire the most that many times you're like, why doesn't God do this? If he would do this, I'd go big time for him. And I would submit to you that that's, that's not necessarily true. Because the ge generation that rebelled against God in the wilderness, they were there on the day the sea was parted. They walked through themselves on the ocean floor or in the sea. They saw God provide miraculously in the desert this manna. What is it from heaven? They would gather just enough for one day. They would bake it. They would eat it. They would boil it. They would use it for whatever. And they were still alive in the wilderness for 40 years. We're not talking six months. We're not even talking three weeks. We're talking 40 years. They survived. I want you to notice that in foreign countries, if someone eats the same thing every day in a third world country, they start to get diseases. They don't have the vitamins and nutrients and they start to, their, their bodies are not healthy. But they ate the same thing, though they despised it, for 40 years and they were healthy. They actually multiplied while they were in the wilderness. They were able to have children. And, and not only that, but miraculously, their clothes didn't wear out. How many times do your kids' clothes last one season, let alone 40 years? Now, they probably had hand-me-downs, you know. They probably had to make new shoes. But my point is, they made it through the wilderness, and it says that even the soles of their shoes didn't wear out. They saw all of that, and they complained. They, they said, oh, well, this, 
this miraculous bread's great and all, but we need meat. Where's the bacon? They didn't eat bacon. But they said, where's the meat? And they, st- they actually started longing to go back to Egypt. Now, what was their occupation in Egypt? They were slaves, but they missed it. Because in Egypt, they had cucumbers, they had onions, all these flavors, and all this heartburn that goes along with cucumbers and onions. They missed it. I mean, who wouldn't miss a daily beating because they didn't get out their quota? Who wouldn't miss a tongue lashing? Who wouldn't miss slavery? And by the way, you have to kill your kids if they're born as boys. They missed it. And in the meantime, God's providing for them miraculously through the wilderness. And so Moses is all a part of this. So back to our passage, he says, Beware of unbelief in your hearts. Verse 12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you, and this is him writing to this people, but maybe we can apply this to our hearts, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Do you know that unbelief in what God has said is actually evil? He says it's an evil heart of unbelief. And look at this, the fruit of a heart of unbelief is departing from the living God. When we see something in God's word and we go, I know your word says this, but we're actually departing from the faith. We're committing apostasy. we, We will worship something, and I guarantee you'll find something that will fulfill that need, and you'll depart from trusting God in that area of your life. He says, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, when we have an evil heart of unbelief, we tend to go to sin instead. We go to trust in something that makes us feel good. He says, uh, so he says, why beware of unbelief? Because it leads to apostasy. What caused their unbelief? I would submit to you that it was fear instead of faith. The reason they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years was fear. If you know the story, and I'm going to go tell it real quick, basically, they had gotten to the Jordan River. Moses gave them the law. He told them that this was the land that God promised to Abraham they were going to cross over the Jordan River. Instead of going in, they sent 12 spies into the land. They said, hey, go check it out. We'd like to know what we're going into. We'd like to walk by sight instead of faith. No big deal, right? And it seems logical. Sometimes we follow logic, and it's not necessary. It it's, can be rebellion. Our logic can actually be rebellion. Guess what? I'm an engineer. I fall to this temptation all the time. I like to do the numbers. I like to calculate. I like to do everything. I get in the paralysis of analysis, and then I don't obey. Just obey. He can protect you if you're doing something that seems unseemly, but he wants you to do. And so... They sent 12 spies in. All 12 of them came back. They saw the giants. There were huge people that lived over there. Apparently, they were bigger. Uh, apparently, there was huge crops. The grapes were gigantic. They carried them back with them. And, and what they found out is that they were too afraid to go in. God said, go in and take the land. They said, uh, I don't know. It looks like it's impossible. And so 10 of the spies came back and basically made everybody else afraid. Two of them did not. Joshua, Caleb. So God judged them. He said, you guys rebel against me. You will never enter into the land of promise because of your unbelief. 
So the whole generation of people from 20 and above died in the wilderness, wandering in circles. They were never meant to be there for 40 years. Now he sustained them until the next generation, and then Deuteronomy is written, and they're told the law again, and they get a do-over. I used to play kickball. I needed lots of do-overs when I was kicking. They'd roll the ball, do-over! You rolled it too bouncy! You know, and, and they gave, God gave them a second chance, and they went into the land led by Joshua. So my point is, We need to deal with our fear. Fear is opposing to faith. We need to deal with our anxieties. And as I was thinking about this, I, it came to mind the scripture in Psalm chapter 139, where it actually says there, God wants us to search our hearts, but he has to be the one that searches the depths to find out what darkness and what fears are in there. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, Verse 23 and 24, he says this, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So he says, know your hearts, get me to know your heart, let me search your heart so I can find these anxieties, and then um, he says, exhort one another daily, hold each other accountable. So his instruction to us there in, in verse, um, uh, it's in there. Sorry about that. It's in there. <laughs> oh, there it is. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. And so I would exhort you guys uh, as a church, as the body of Christ, to get in contact with one another throughout the week. And one of the ways that we can actually uh, stir one another up and exhort one another daily is by simply asking this question. How are you doing today? Are you living by faith or by fear? Fear will keep you from entering into God's promises. Faith will help you to experience abundance in the land. In this life, the promise is not just for heaven. So in verse 16, he goes on to say this, For who having heard, rebelled. Now he's talking about those people. They heard, but they rebelled. Indeed, was it not uh, all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So I wrote some things down for you. We've gone over many of them. But he said, these are those who were led by Moses. They were miraculously delivered from Egypt by plagues. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land, and they saw the Egyptians drown. They were fed manna every day miraculously. They were provided water from a rock in the desert. They received the law of God from a fiery mountain. They were delivered from poisonous snakes, if you want to read about it, in Numbers by the serpent on a pole, etc., etc., etc. They did not hold on to their confession to the end. Lord, we trust you. Okay, it's getting a little hard. I don't know if I trust you. Likewise, guess what? There was a region that Jesus did miracles in as well. Remember, Moses is the type of Jesus. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. 
and I've been to this region, and I've seen it. Matthew chapter 11. This is the region of Capernaum, where Jesus basically had his headquarters for ministry. And he did most of his miraculous signs in Capernaum. And that's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, it says, Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which of his most mighty works had been done because they did not repent of their sin. And he says this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, the ones that did not see these miracles, in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's quite the indictment. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. In other words, those who do calculations, try to use their logic, and have revealed them to those who are babes, those who are simple. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so I've been to the region he's speaking to and speaking woe to these cities. Guess what's there now? Nothing. It's a tourist trap. You can see the building that many believe was actually Peter's mother-in-law's house. You can see all these different places to go see historic sites, but there are no cities there. Woe to you. He said woe to them, and there are no cities anymore. If God says it, it comes to pass. They became a sign. And, and they, just like those who didn't believe Moses, because they were cool and calculating and competent in their own understanding, did not enter into the promise. But what Jesus says is, if you will be simple, if you will receive my words, if you will hear from me and obey, you will enter into true rest. Does that mean that your life will become easy and that your job will be easier? No. He doesn't promise that. But you will find rest for your souls in the work that he gives you to do. And so, my question for you this morning is, are you experiencing abundant life in the land? God's promise to bring us into a land of promise. I would submit to you that true rest is obtained by faith. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The word of God. Are you listening regularly to what Jesus is saying to you through his word? 
And then, as you're listening, are you exercising faith in what you hear? Many times God says things to us like we started at this morning. Holy brethren, right? Do you believe that God's made you holy by Jesus? Are you exercising faith in your hearing? Do you believe it even if you can't see it right now? And then, I want to question, is this you? I know what God's word says, but do you know that that's rebellion? Do you know that God's not willing that you would continue in that rebellion, but he wants to softly, sweetly, tenderly rebuke you? If you can do that and say, believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and putting our full weight upon it. You say, I believe this chair will hold me up and you never sit on it. Do you really believe the, hair, the chair will hold you up? Now, if I made it, maybe you shouldn't sit on it. But Jesus is God. And if he promised it, it will come to pass. And you will experience rest because it will be trusting that if Jesus said it, it will happen. So, Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this uh, admonition, this exhortation. Lord Jesus, I uh, confess to you that there are many times that I've not experienced rest because I simply, simply haven't taken heed to your word instead of my situation. If there's anybody here this morning that has not held to this confession, encourage them. If there's anybody here this morning that, that comes and says, I'm not holy because I haven't trusted Jesus, I pray that they would take the opportunity this morning and to confess you as their Lord and Savior, and to receive this holiness that we can't earn or do anything for. And Father, I pray that as we go throughout our week, and as our jobs, and our responsibilities, and the weight of our uh, temptations, they press in on us, and they discourage us, and cause us to start to doubt. I pray that you would impress upon us word from your scripture that remind us that, that faith uh, trumps fear every time. Remove those anxieties. Cause us to get to know the one who we trust. And in those moments, Lord, cause us to take little steps of faith that will lead to bigger ones. Lord, we love you, and we want to experience all that you have for us. And we want to be a light to our nation. We want to be a light to our community. We want to be a light to our families. We cannot do that alone. So, Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, help us to walk in faith. Help us to see what your word says and truly take it to heart even when it doesn't look like it. Lord, we need you for this. We can't do it without you. In Jesus' name, amen.